On this edition of the Table of Content, we are joined by Joseph Pierce. He'll talk with us about Shakespeare and help us to dig a little bit further into his life. We'll get to know a little bit about Joseph's background and why he made the decision to follow Shakespeare. Stay with us. That's coming up here on the Table of Content. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of The Table of Content. My name is Albert Sines. I am your host, and we are so delighted to have Joseph Pierce joining us. Joseph, thanks so much for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation. You are certainly welcome, sir. Uh, So, Joseph, I always like to give our listeners a chance to find out a little bit more about who it is we're talking to. So if it's possible to put into a brief synopsis your life, uh, what it is that you do, and how you came to be where you are, I'd uh, love to hear it. Well, uh, as my accent may betray, uh, although I'm now living in the United States in South Carolina, I was born in England, in London. Uh, I've been in the States since 2001, moving here four days before 9-11. Prior to my arrival in the States, I was a full-time writer living in England. Um, I'm a convert to the faith, largely due to the influence of G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc. My first biography was A Life of G.K. Chesterton, which was an act of thanksgiving to Chesterton for helping me to convert, and obviously an act of thanksgiving to God for giving me Chesterton. Um, And now I'm director of uh, book publishing at the Augustine Institute. Uh, I have my own personal website, jpierce.co. I'm the author of 25 books, uh, editor of the St. Austin Review, senior contributor to the Imaginative Conservative, uh, visiting fellow at Thomas More College of Liberal Arts, and I'm sure I'm forgetting one or two things. Well, there's no lack of things that you're involved in. Well, I keep Um, myself busy, Albert. Well, I guess that makes time go by fairly quickly. It does. Well, I'm glad that you clarified that you're not from the States initially. There might have been a few people who just thought it was a particular accent from North Carolina. So I appreciate you clarifying that for our listeners. Oh, my pleasure. As I say to uh, <laughs> to, uh, to our neighbors here, I say that my wife and I are as Southern as you are. My wife's from, <laughs> my wife's from Southern California and I'm from Southern England. So, you know, it's all, all about which South we're talking about, right? <laughs> right. Right. Well, very good. Well, I'm glad to be talking to a fellow Southerner uh, as I reside in Texas at this point in my life. So uh, always good to hear from fellow Southerners. Always. So, Joseph Pierce, you are fascinated and I would say very inundated with Shakespeare. I'd like to just ask the first general question, why Shakespeare? Well, um, there's, there's, there's more than one answer to that. I was raised in effectively agnostically, but my father considered uh, Shakespeare the greatest Englishman who ever lived and could quote swathes of him. So I've sort of learned Shakespeare from my father's knee. So he's always been important to me. But of course, what I became to be aware of um, a few years ago was that the overwhelming evidence for Shakespeare's uh, Catholicism, the fact that Shakespeare was a Catholic living in very anti-Catholic times, and that this can be seen not only in the facts of his life, but also in the plots of his plays. And as Shakespeare is arguably the greatest writer who ever lived, the fact that he's a Catholic is clearly a pertinent and important point. So I've, I've set about doing my own 
studies into this. So I've written three books on Shakespeare, um, The Quest for Shakespeare, The Bard of Avon and The Church of Rome, which looks at the biographical and historical evidence for Shakespeare's Catholicism. And then I wrote a book called Through Shakespeare's Eyes, Seeing the Catholic Presence in the Plays. And then I wrote a third book uh, called Shakespeare on Love, Seeing the Catholic Presence in Romeo and Juliet. So, yes, you're completely correct that Shakespeare it has become uh, a major part of my life. I've also, I've, I didn't mention in the introduction that I am the series editor of the Ignatius Critical Editions. And we've produced 27 uh, editions of the great works of literature, including seven of Shakespeare's plays in that series. So I've edited each of those editions. So, yes, I, I, I'm spending a lot of time with Shakespeare. Shakespeare, and I can't think of many better ways of spending my time. Well, here's just a fun side question that I'd like to know the answer to, and maybe our listeners would like to know. Uh, in doing some reading, I've seen where Shakespeare is referred to as the bard. Where does that uh, title come from? Well, the full title of Shakespeare is the Bard of Avon, or the Bard of Avon, if you want the American pronunciation. The word bard is just an old word for a poet. So, um, the Bard of Avon is the poet of Avon. Avon is the River Avon, which runs through Stratford-upon-Avon, which is the town in which Shakespeare was born. Um, so he's called the Bard of Avon. And yeah, you're right. Sometimes they just call him the Bard, uh, the poet, insofar as he is so preeminent that there are few others that could, uh, um, uh, claim um, preeminence over him, with the possible exception, perhaps, of Homer and Dante. To me... Those three writers are, are, are the, the triumvirate of literary giants who straddle the centuries. So Homer from the classical Greek world, Dante, of course, from the high Middle Ages, and then uh, Shakespeare from the early modern period. Okay. Well, thank you for giving some explanation to that, because, like I said, I was curious myself. Um, now, getting into Shakespeare in a little bit more detail... I, I could be making a terrible assumption, but I feel like a large swath of the world hears Shakespeare and they automatically just defer to Romeo and Juliet. They're going, oh, right, that guy, the Romeo and Juliet guy, the, you know, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo. And that's about the extent of their Shakespearean knowledge outside of potentially seeing a bust of him, you know, sitting in someone's shelf or a picture of such. But I know there's a lot more to Shakespeare. Where what is the world missing beyond Romeo and Juliet? Try to give some breath to Shakespeare that the world should know about this man. Yeah, well the first thing is of course it's worse than that in many ways because not only for most people is Shakespeare um epitomized by that one play or most one or two other plays. Um, but those plays are usually misread by the modern academy and by modern producers and directors of the plays so that the real meaning of those plays is not actually conveyed. So, for instance, that's why the third book I wrote, Shakespeare Unloved, Seeing the Catholic Presence in Romeo and Juliet, was to show that what Shakespeare understands by the word love uh, is very different from the way that most people think he understands by the word love from their misunderstanding of the play Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet is not about a glorious love affair between a, a, a man and a woman. Uh, it's actually about a, a cautionary tale about the dangers of following unbridled passion, following the, uh, the, uh, the, the seductions of uh, eros, of erotic uh, um, fear 
feeling rather than following one's objective reason. For a Christian, uh, love is the irrational choice. Uh, love and reason are actually united. Because for a Christian, love is to freely choose to lay down our lives for the other. Um, whereas for the relativist, love is some sort of irrational emotional feeling. Shakespeare is aware of the different, those two different um, definitions, and the whole of Romeo and Juliet is showing how um, following the false understanding of love, in other words, the irrational emotional understanding of it, ends disastrously with the death of the lovers and the deaths of others, um, whereas uh, a Christian understanding of love actually restores order. That's what the play's about, and so that's an example of the misunderstanding understanding of Shakespeare and what's true of, uh, of the misunderstanding of Romeo and Juliet is true of the misunderstanding of many of his other famous plays such as Hamlet for instance. Now I remember studying Romeo and Juliet I believe when I was um, in the ninth grade or tenth grade and that was many many years ago and I don't remember the teacher focusing on the Christian principles of love, and I'm hearing you speak about them with very great vigor and detail. And you were mentioning earlier about how a little bit about the Catholicism aspect of Shakespeare. So I'm gathering there's really something that we're missing as a general public regarding what Shakespeare was actually writing about. Absolutely. And, and like you, I also was taught Romeo and Juliet in uh, probably the ninth or 10th grade also. Sounds about right. And I'm sure it was even longer ago in my case than it was for you. <laughs> uh, and, and yeah, it was taught to me exactly the same way it was taught to you, this misreading of the play, where it's all about the sort of emotional feeling between the two lovers and the feelings of hatred between the Capulets and the Montagues, all about emotion, nothing's about ratio, nothing's about reason uh, and that is exactly the opposite of what Shakespeare's play actually says and that's why I spent a whole book going through the play scene by scene to illustrate this and obviously we can't go into that sort of detail in an interview of this length. Let me say one thing however that Shakespeare uh, makes a point, um, he, he, uses, he, he he's adapting an earlier poem uh, about the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet and, and so we, we can learn a lot about what Shakespeare's doing with, with, with his work by knowing what he's doing with the source and in, in this case he deliberately makes Romeo a little bit older and specifically makes Juliet a lot younger. So Juliet is 13 years old, um, uh, and it's often sort of taught, well, that was not unusual in those days for 13-year-olds to get married. Uh, sorry, uh, the actual uh, good, solid historical research shows that the average age for women to get married in, 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 in the 1590s when the play was written was in, the, in their early 20s. The average age for men to get married was in their mid to late 20s. Marriages below the age of 18 were rare, below the age of 16 were almost unheard of. And it was true that people could be betrothed to get married prior to that, but the marriage was not consummated uh, and solemnized um, until and the couple came of age. So in other words, that Shakespeare's audience would have seen Juliet as a girl, uh, as a child, in fact, um, who is, um, through neglect, 
by her parents and through uh, the caddish behaviour of Romeo, uh, finds herself seduced and plunged into an adult world for which she's not ready. Um, and uh, we also need to know that when Shakespeare wrote this play, his own daughter Susanna was about 13 years old. The play is actually written by the father of a teenage girl. All of these factors are important. So moving off from Romeo and Juliet, it, is it, am I safe to assume that many of Shakespeare's plays are generally misinterpreted from one standpoint of just the general like, okay, Shakespeare actually meant this. It's been misinterpreted from a lack of, uh, we're not present in Shakespeare's era. We're looking at it from our modern day standpoint, but also missing completely that Shakespeare was actually writing from a large amount of Christian principles, uh, specifically even Catholic principles. Precisely. So that's why my book, uh, Through Shakespeare's Eyes, is called Through Shakespeare's Eyes, you know, full title, Through Shakespeare's Eyes, Seeing the Catholic Presence in the Plays. That if you really want to know what Shakespeare is doing with the plays, you have to know who Shakespeare is and what his most important uh, principles are, what his most important views are. What, and, and this, of course, will be dictated by his theology and by his philosophy. Um, if, if you can show beyond all reasonable doubt, which uh, in both biographical evidence from Shakespeare's own life and times, and also from the textual evidence from the plays themselves and the sonnets and the poems, um, that Shakespeare was a believing Catholic in very anti-Catholic times, times in which it was illegal in England to be a priest, punishable by death to be a priest, when it was punishable by death to harbour a priest, then a lot of the tension, the moral dynamic uh, in Shakespeare's plays become apparent. This is lost to the modern world because the modern world is blind to the world in which Shakespeare lived and blind to the philosophy that animated and motivated Shakespeare's work. So you obviously have taken it upon yourself to write this book, to help us see through Shakespeare's eyes. Uh, are there others that uh, support your view, your your direction, uh, or are you kind of the, the, the lone man standing out there trying to push this? Well, thanks be to God, not the latter. Uh, I, no, I, no, I, there's a phrase that is attributed to Sir Isaac Newton, but actually goes back much further, probably to medieval times, uh, that we are standing on the shoulders of giants, that really what I've what I've done as, with with my my work on Shakespeare is to build on the solid foundation that's been uh, put in place by previous generations of scholars. So the evidence for Shakespeare's Catholicism uh, obviously goes back to his own times, um, but there's been uh, solid scholarship on this topic for the past 150 plus years, um, and so that is from that. Um, a treasure trove of resources that I've been mining in order to actually um, to write my own work. I'm part of a tradition. I'm certainly not a lone voice. So could I pick any of Shakespeare's works and we could say, well, that's written from a Catholic perspective and so is that one, you know? Could I say Henry V is written from a Catholic perspective, Julius Caesar is written from a Catholic perspective, or is it a little bit more finite than that? 
Well, uh, I think uh, uh, in the broadest sense of the word, the answer would be yes, you could say that all of Shakespeare's plays are written from a Catholic perspective, but it's more obvious uh, in some plays than others. In some plays, you know, the, the Catholicism is not the primary focus or even the secondary focus. So in that sense, the, the, the presence would be sort of subsumed within other other themes, uh, but in other plays, that basically the dilemma, the moral dilemma that that, that uh, Shakespeare's Catholic contemporaries found are at the very heart of the drama itself. So these are these are profoundly and palpably Catholic plays. The other plays, the, the less so, would be sort of plays that are not about uh, the faith in any dis easily discernible way, but are still written by someone. Who's the very air he breathes and every thought he has is informed by a by a scholastic Catholic understanding of the cosmos. You know, and I'm going to now pick out a quote from you from when you did an article, you did an interview with American Magazine, and I think it kind of supports what you just were telling me. And you said, a work of art always embodies and incarnates in some sense the deepest held beliefs of an author. So I think... Uh, taking that quote from you and what you just explained to me, that we can say that everything that Shakespeare wrote minimally was written by a man who at his deepest core held Catholic beliefs. Exactly. And and the fact that a work of art in some sense is incarnational, so uh, that the, 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 we can only put into a work of art what we have to put into it. So, uh, you know, if, 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 if we're not going to put into it an understanding of the cosmos, which contradicts uh, what, what our own understanding of the cosmos is, except as a viewpoint. But again, you know, so Shakespeare will put Machiavellians and cynics and nihilists in his plays um, and anti-Catholics in his plays, but they are always villains. Uh, the heroes and heroines, on the other hand, are those that show conventional understandings of virtue and lay down their lives for their friends, the greatest love of, of, of all, as, as our Lord tells us. Um, and so he basically, in Shakespeare's plays, we see that sanity and sanctity are ultimately the same thing uh, and that, that viciousness, vice, is, is madness. Now, what do we, as a general public stand to gain from Shakespeare? Because obviously his language is not the language of today's society, and sometimes it can be a, a bit hard to sort of dig through what Shakespeare is trying to say. Uh, definitely a lot of sort of English words that we just don't use to, to today. But if we were to make an effort to try to really dig into Shakespeare, what do we stand to gain from reading Shakespeare? Well, apart from the fact that we have the greatest truths being told with the greatest beauty by one of the greatest writers and greatest minds that ever lived, the, the, what I would actually like to, to, to concentrate on here is the fact that in learning Shakespeare's English, we are actually able to communicate the reality of the cosmos to ourselves and to others much better. Let me try to explain that. So, for instance, that you have an abstract word like vocabulary, a Latin word like vocabulary, and that's an abstract concept, right? It's, it's, it's the words out, that are out there somehow um, that are, may or may not be accessible to us as individuals. The Anglo-Saxons used the phrase word hoard. Every single individual has their own individual word hoard. In other words, their own 
private bag of words. And the Anglo-Saxons understood that um, the more words you have in your store of words, the wealthier you are, because it allows you to uh, describe, define, and understand the things you see. It allows you to define and describe those things to others. It allows you to understand yourself and the cosmos, and it allows you to be understood by others uh, in your understanding. So in other words, to, to, to increase the size of our word hoard is one of, the wealth, one of the best ways to get wealthy and one of the most important ways, uh, which is our ability to understand ourselves and others. So Shakespeare, learning Shakespeare's English is actually to be created upon our ourselves uh, inestimable wealth. And as philologists, scholars in language will tell you, such as, for instance, J.R.R. Tolkien, that language, and specifically the English language, is in a process of decay. So if we are happy just to, to speak uh, the language of our contemporaries, you know, we're, we're, we're basically uh, decaying uh, into a level of the the, the, the primordial swamp, uh, the grunt and ignorance of the caveman. If we actually want to be able to describe the cosmos to ourselves and to others, we have to increase our vocabulary to actually increase the size of our word hoard, uh, and that requires effort. As all good things require effort, no pain, no gain. And so whatever pain is involved in learning Shakespeare, the gain far outweighs it. You know, uh, my wife would love to hear you sort of be that cheerleader for increasing vocabulary. My my wife is quite a fan of 19th century literature uh, and obviously Shakespeare's a few centuries behind there, but she is such an, such an advocate for speaking well and that we have severely lost the ability to speak well. We, 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 we don't even argue well anymore. We, we argue in very poor fashion. And I imagine that it was, it was a much more colorful experience to have, have an argument or a debate in Shakespeare's time than it is now, where we just sort of throw slurs and angry words at each other. Yeah, well, that, but there's two reasons for that. First is the decay of language, which we've been discussing. The other is the decay of philosophy. Because if we live in a relativistic cosmos, there's no objective truth. So there's no point of having an argument about a truth that one of us doesn't understand, or perhaps neither of us understand, or right, perhaps both right. of us understand, only understand partially. The purpose of an argument should be for both of us to be closer to the truth at the end of it. That's if you have an objective, realistic understanding of, 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 uh, of, of the cosmos. But if you're a relativist, basically everything is just an opinion and a feeling and, and irrational anyway, and about personal empowerment, then everybody who disagrees with me is offending me. So you, then, then you end up, in, again, the, 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 uh, the level of the, uh, uh, of the primeval swamp, where all we can do is abuse each other, and we're not interested in getting closer to the truth, we're just interested in abusing others because we think they're abusing us. And we've lost something great when we reduce ourselves to such actions. Well, we're not living in the real world. So that, that, that's the, 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 the worst thing about it, is we actually have enslaved ourselves to a false understanding, to a delusional understanding of the reality in which we find ourselves. Now, basically, the truth will set you free. Uh, set you free, and the only other thing is, you know, that uh, you know, in the beginning was the word, the logos. Well, you know, in the beginning was the word. Words are the means by which we actually get to understand the word. So these are all very important lessons that we we forget at our peril. Right, and we have uh, sticking with scripture for a moment. We have the word incarnate, and of course, the word is the truth. Right, so we start with the truth. The truth has word 
we take the word, the word becomes flesh, and we encounter the truth through the flesh, and of course, through interpretation of the spirit and scripture. So yes, very, very, very good points that you make. Well, thank you. As I said, that, that if we really want to understand a world in which we live, then understanding the truths that we see uh, in the works of Shakespeare, in the language which he uses, is a, is a, a great means uh, to achieve that. So let's bring it back down a little bit and come back to Shakespeare before we run out of time. On a personal level, uh, if you were going to recommend to the audience who wants to say, okay, I will take up Shakespeare. I will I will try. I will take my time. I will read through it. I will increase my vocabulary in a positive way. Where do I start? Where would well, you direct them to, to start with Shakespeare? Yeah, well, I would actually recommend that they check out my book uh, Through Shakespeare's Eyes as a guide to uh, to the plays. And then I would... Um, uh, so three of the plays that are mentioned in that book, it's based upon three plays, uh, one is Hamlet and one is King Lear, and they—they—they they, 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 they my two favourites and arguably the two best of Shakespeare's plays, these great tragedies. So they should read Hamlet uh, and or King Lear, neither of which are easy plays. So I'm not starting people with the easiest, but I think if they—they they were to either buy my book through Shakespeare's eyes and read the plays in conjunction with reading my commentary on them, uh, and or read the by the Ignatius Critical Editions of those two plays, Hamlet and King Lear. Um, IgnatiusCriticalEditions.com is the website at Ignatius Press for them. Then, in other words, that most people are, are not going to get a, a, as much out of Shakespeare as they can without some sort of guidance. Uh, most of us can't go back to school, and indeed, most most secular schools, as we've already discussed, will mislead us rather than lead us. But um, we we can we can find reliable guides to Shakespeare's work, and I would suggest the Ignatius Critical Editions is is an example of that. And as regards those two plays I mentioned, that uh, my book Through Shakespeare's Eyes would be an, uh, a useful guide to those two plays. And is it safe to say, Joseph, that we should recommend to the listeners to not try to find a movie adaptation of Hamlet or King Lear to base their studies on? Uh, yes, generally speaking, avoid <laughs> watching film adaptations of Shakespeare's plays uh, altogether, or cer certainly and, and not until after you've actually read the play and studied the play with a reliable guide so you know what it is before you start seeing what producers and directors tell you what it is, which is not the same thing. <laughs> right, right. Oh, well, Joseph... Uh, we're coming to the end here, and it sounds like there's just so much content to try to dig through regarding Shakespeare, his life, his writings. Uh, but I think we've we've got a good start, and I, I want to thank you for taking some time to talk with me and to introduce our listeners to what's probably a deeper part of Shakespeare that they were mostly unaware of. Well, I, I, it's been my pleasure. As you will have gathered from the conversation, Shakespeare is very much a passion of mine and a labour of love. So I, I, I can't get enough of Shakespeare. So having an excuse to speak about him, talk about him for half an hour with, with, with someone such as yourself, Albert, has been a joy for me. So thank you for having me. You're so welcome. And uh, hopefully maybe we can uh, get together again at some point and maybe try to focus on maybe one of his particular plays. Maybe we can talk a little bit more in depth about uh, Hamlet or King Lear specifically at a later date. I would be more than happy to do that. 
Ladies and gentlemen, we've been talking with Joseph Pierce, uh, a Shakespeare expert. Uh, I invite you to visit his website. Joseph, what's the website again? Uh, jpierce.co. So jpierce.co uh, to learn more about uh, Joseph himself, but uh, to learn more about Shakespeare and uh, what other pursuits are on his plate. So we thank you for joining us for this episode. We hope that you will tune us in again next time on the Table of Content. Until then, be good, stay safe, peace. Peace.